Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by the Executive Director of Integrity First for America, Amy Spitalnik. Amy Spitalnik, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. For those that don't know what Integrity First for America is doing, it's probably best to take us back a few steps before this organization was around to where it all started in 2017 at the Unite the Right rally that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia. What went on there and and how has it led us to this point? Well, it's easy to forget that two and a half years ago on American streets, neo-Nazis and white supremacists descended on an American city and terrorized that city with a weekend of violence I think we all remember vividly the images of the Tiki Torch March in which they descended on the University of Virginia, surrounded the Thomas Jefferson statue, and beat up and threw lit torches and fuel on students and other community members who had been speaking out peacefully against white supremacy. And then the next day, on August 12, 2017, these neo-Nazis and white supremacists marched on downtown Charlottesville on Emancipation Park. They were there under the guise of protesting the removal of a Confederate statue, but it's very clear that that's not at all what this was about. They were there to harm people based on their race, their religion, and their willingness to stand up for other people's rights. And so on August 12th, there's so much to tell about that day. Um, But a few anecdotes. One, we know that these neo-Nazis and white supremacists surrounded the local synagogue where they were observing Shabbat services. They were talking about torching those Jewish monsters, quote unquote, and chanting Sieg Heil. Uh, They were carrying semi-automatic weapons. And the synagogue, including a Torah scroll from the Holocaust era, had to be evacuated. So for me, as the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, it's always been particularly stunning to hear that story that this Torah that had survived Nazi Germany was once again under Nazi threat in 2017 in America. And the day of violence unfolded after that. They charged at a line of interfaith clergy who were peacefully standing up to hate in their community. And the day culminated with what we now all know was a terribly horrific situation in which James Fields drove his car into a crowd of peaceful counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer and injuring many others. What's important to understand is that none of this was an accident. All of this was planned for months in advance on social media, specifically on a platform called Discord, which is typically used by video gamers. And in these chats, the leaders of this movement talked about everything from what to wear, what to bring for lunch. They even talked about the gluten-free bread they would bring. And then they talked about which weapons to carry, how to claim self-defense. Can they hit protesters with cars if they're standing in the roadway, which is, of course, exactly what they went on to do. And so none of this was an accident. All of this was part of a months-long plan to bring violence to Charlottesville, a plan that was orchestrated by the leaders of this neo-Nazi and white supremacist movement. And so on behalf of 10 Charlottesville community members who were injured in the violence, some of whom were injured on the Friday night Tiki Torch March, many of whom were injured in the car attack, including a number of folks you can see in that now iconic Pulitzer photo of the car plowing through the crowd. Um, We are suing the two dozen neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and hate groups responsible for planning and executing this violence. I think many of those names you'll know. 
Richard Spencer, Andrew England, Chris Cantwell, Identity Europa, which now goes by American Identity Movement, Vanguard America. Um, many of these groups like Vanguard America and Identity Europa are responsible not just for acts of violence like what we saw in Charlottesville, but propaganda that we see on a near daily basis across the country. These groups and leaders really are at the center of this violent white nationalist movement. And so our hope with the suit is that we not only win justice for our plaintiffs and for the city of Charlottesville, but also bankrupt and dismantle the groups and the leaders that are at the center of this movement through large civil judgments and send a clear message that if you're part of these violent conspiracies, there'll be very significant legal and financial consequences. That ability to really dismantle this organization is why it's one of those trials that really has the potential to fundamentally change America, a once-in-a-generation trial, as it were. It's been likened to the attempts to, and successful attempts, to dismantle the KKK, for example, through legal action. How has this case progressed through the courts, and how has that worked so far? Because there have already been small victories along the way with, as you were talking there, financial penalties or preventing these white supremacists and neo-Nazis from furthering the work that they're doing. That's exactly right. So even before we go to trial, and I should note trial is scheduled for this October, so it is happening and it is soon. Um, but even before we go to trial, we've seen very um, important victories on behalf of our plaintiffs. Folks like Richard Spencer, who coined the term alt-right, has talked about how this case is just, quote, totally detrimental to his ability to operate. League of the South, which is another white supremacist hate group, was not able to open a new headquarters because of the case. And just a few weeks ago, Elliot Klein, who also goes by Eli, Eli Mosley, he's one of the main neo-Nazi organizers of Unite the Right and a general neo-Nazi leader in the country. He was thrown in jail and fined thousands of dollars as a result of a sanctions motion that our plaintiffs won. Um, and we see a number of other sort of smaller victories along this these lines, perhaps most notably the fact that Unite the Right um, in 2018 didn't happen because many of our defendants were afraid of being sued again. And so this is good. We think that it shows that our justice system, that the rule of law can have a very real impact on these leaders and these groups' ability to operate. Um, of course, that's not enough. And we are going to trial this October. At that trial, we will put them on the stand and lay bare the hate, the violence, the racism, the anti-Semitism, the xenophobia that's at the core of their ideology and win large civil judgments in which um, we have the potential to bankrupt and dismantle their ability to operate. We've seen how the actions that occurred in Charlottesville are still having a lasting impact on people in that community and across America. While the Unite the Right rally hasn't taken place again, there was a, a fear in the community for a while that that was going to happen when white supremacists and neo-Nazis started talking about holding another one. Was this what inspired you to act here, watching how communities can be torn apart by the behavior of these white supremacists and neo-Nazis? The, the murder of that innocent protester in 2017, for example, tore a hole in the heart of that community. And uh, was that what really made you say, I'm going to fight these people? They need 
someone to hold them to account. I, I think that's a very important point. And what happened in Charlottesville in 2017 was not an isolated incident. It was a flashpoint in this much larger rise of violent white nationalism and violent extremism in this country. And we've seen how it's part of a much larger cycle of violence. And so even before Charlottesville, we had the Charleston attacks, in which African-American congregants were killed during Bible study by a white supremacist. Charlottesville, in many ways, served as sort of the rallying cry for this movement and the ways in which they were so emboldened in that in August of 2017 to march on an American city to, with their faces out there for the world to see and to plan and then execute such horrific violence that was motivated by hate and racism. Um, in many ways, Charlottesville was this flashpoint in the much larger rise of these violent extremists. But we also know that it really is part of this larger cycle. So, for example, the Pittsburgh shooter who killed 11 people in synagogue in October of 2018 communicated on Gab, which is another right-wing hate site, with some of the Charlottesville leaders before his attack. The Christchurch shooter, and we're actually coming up on the one-year anniversary of the Christchurch mosque attacks, um, he painted onto his gun a symbol known as the fash tag that was popularized by one of our Charlottesville defendants, Matthew Heimbach. And then, of course, Christchurch inspired Poway and El Paso and so many of these other attacks. And so it's very important to understand that these aren't isolated incidents, but part of a much larger cycle of violence in which each attack is used to inspire the next. We often hear about the term lone wolf, but I would argue that none of these attacks are lone wolves. They're people who are motivated, inspired, encouraged by other attacks that happen as part of this larger cycle. There's also a common theme that is occurring, not just in America with white supremacy and neo-Nazis, but also on a global scale. And you talked about the New Zealand mosque shooting there uh, as one such example. Your organization talked about how the Pittsburgh shooter, and you mentioned it there, communicated on Gab with the Charlottesville leaders before they killed 11 people at the Tree of Life synagogue. and your organization is pointing that out to illustrate the centrality of the defendants you're challenging in the lawsuit. But social media, Discord, Facebook to further live streaming of that mosque shooting, that tragic incident in New Zealand, have really been central to all of these instances that have occurred. Well, once these people are limited to the isolated fringe, they, they're now able to communicate freely, meet others, share what they're doing and their hateful views. Do you think the messaging apps, social media companies who allow this to occur on their platforms and in some cases actively encourage divisive comments because they believe that powers engagement on their site are culpable for this content that they're allowed to spread and, and how do we really challenge that? Yeah, well, that's a critical point and you can't understand this issue without understanding the role of social media and the internet in getting us to this moment. You know, one of the central statutes we're using in our case is something called the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which was first passed nearly 150 years ago to protect recently freed slaves from Klan vigilante violence in the South after the Civil War. And it's been used a number of times since, including during the Freedom Rider era, to protect victims of hate crimes. 
And we're using it now. And even though the statute is 150 years old, to me, what's most stunning is that it's so applicable here and it holds in the same way it would nearly 150 years ago. The only difference being that instead of meeting in clan dens in the woods somewhere in the South, these extremists are meeting in chat rooms on social media online. And in many ways, social media has become the clan den of the 21st century. And so you can't address this issue without fundamentally addressing the role of social media in spreading this hate and in allowing these extremists to connect in ways that they hadn't before. I think there's a few things to, to note in particular. One, under something called the Communications Decency Act, um, currently social media companies are protected from any real liability when it comes to the actions that are planned or what happens on their platform. Um, and that is something that you know limits the ability to take action in moments like this if there is, you know, if someone believes that there is a liability for the social media companies. Um, however, what we do know is that in some cases, there have been tech companies trying to make positive steps. In many cases, it is too little, too late, um, and that we've already seen how these companies and these platforms have been co-opted to spread extremism. We do have an opportunity, though, right now. Our trial is happening this fall. At trial, we are going to lay bare the ways in which Discord and other social media sites were co-opted and used to plan this, this extremist violence in Charlottesville. And it's happening at a very critical moment of public conversation in our country. So my hope is that making clear about how this happened will force policymakers and the private sector and others to really think critically about where we go from here, because Private plaintiffs like ours can't do this alone. Law enforcement can't do this alone. Even lawmakers can't do this alone. There needs to be a comprehensive solution here that brings together all of those stakeholders and the private sector to truly address what's at the root of this crisis. We'll be back with more right after this break. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But I didn't know this until recently. And it's taken my TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Over the weekend, I used ExpressVPN to binge Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Canada Netflix. It was so simple. I just fired up the ExpressVPN app, changed my location to Canada, refreshed Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost a hundred different countries. So just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there. But the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch shows is it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash the Hardy Report, 
you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash thehardyreport. One of the issues that's lacking here as well is action from the government, because while once the Justice Department would have seen white supremacy, neo-Nazis, actions that have occurred here and the failure of social media companies to act as things to fundamentally tackle and address, that's lacking now. How have you found that within your work? Because you're having to take this forward yourself and with Integrity First for America and the plaintiffs in Charlottesville, but the government's not supporting you here. So, so how disappointing has that really been for you to see an organisation that's supposed to hold people to account and work for justice stand idly by? Yeah. Well, the good news is, is that our case has been moving forward and been quite successful on its own, for, of which we're quite proud. And, and we fully expect to win these large judgments at trial. But it is important to understand that over the last few years, we've seen a true sort of decimation of the types of civil rights work that had been central to the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. DOJ cases and investigations are down, I believe, two-thirds over the last few years. That's significant. And instead of focusing on hate crimes and things along those lines, they're focused on fighting affirmative action at Harvard. So that is, that's a problem. Um, and in many ways, when IFA was conceived of, when Integrity First for America was conceived of, we knew that there would not be an active DOJ civil rights division in the same way that there had previously been, and it would make private plaintiffs like ours all the more important. But it's also important to understand that this is happening in a broader context, that not only are DOJ cases and investigations down when it comes to civil rights, but you know programs like anti-extremism programs through the Department of Homeland Security and other programs along those lines have been cut in recent years. I don't want to discount the important work that folks at the FBI and in other law enforcement offices are doing. They have been doing really important work, especially over the last few months, holding to account, arresting and prosecuting a number of these violent neo-Nazis. And we've certainly seen an uptick in those arrests, particularly over the last six months or so since the El Paso attack. Um, and in particular, um, related to a few violent neo-Nazi organizations like Adam Waffen Division. Um, but there is so much more that needs to be done from a policy perspective, from a resources perspective, from ensuring that various levels of government and law enforcement have the tools to communicate and collaborate um, between one another. And it's impossible to look at what happened in Charlottesville and the sort of fairly limited governmental reaction to it without looking at that broader context in which civil rights um, cases have, have largely been put on the back burner. As I was mentioning there, obviously, the individuals that have brought forward this lawsuit, it's not just Integrity First for America, but it's 10 very brave members of the Charlottesville community who've stood up like you and gone, enough is enough. We need to act if others aren't going to. Could you give us a bit about their stories and, and what made them say it? What was the final straw for them? Obviously, the Charlottesville rally, but what made them say, you know what, we really need to act here and we need to get justice for the members of our community that they've ha had such a devastating impact on? Right. So 
the, the plaintiffs in our case are really the reason I, I wake up every morning. These these people who are students at the University of Virginia, clergy members, other community members, many of whom lived much of their life in Charlottesville or were, were integral parts of the community. Um, they saw white supremacists come to their community and decided to peacefully counter protest, stand up and say that hate, that violence had no place in their community. And because they were peacefully doing so in order to protect their, their neighbors, protect people of various backgrounds, they were violently attacked by these extremists. And so there's, there's so many, so many stories about our plaintiffs and what they lived through on August 11th and 12th, 2017, but a few of them that might be worth highlighting. Um, or a few of them that I can at least try to highlight. Um, for example, you know that iconic Pulitzer-winning photo of the car going through the crowd. In that photo, you can see two of our plaintiffs, Marcus Martin, who's the African-American man, sort of flung over the back of the car. He had been standing on the side of um, the street or on the street with his fiance Marissa Blair, and their friend, Heather Heyer, who Marissa worked with as a paralegal, um, peacefully counter-protesting the white supremacists and then eventually heading home, when James Fields drove his car through the crowd, Marcus was able to push his fiance Marissa out of the way, but Marcus was directly hit by the car. He suffered broken legs and a whole assortment of other injuries um, and still suffers both physical and emotional injuries to this day. You also see in that photo Thomas Baker in a gray shirt flipping over the front of the car, who's another one of our plaintiffs. Similarly, he suffered a whole host of um, physical and emotional injuries. Marissa is a plaintiff who is Marcus's then fiance, now wife. She suffered a number of injuries. Natalie Romero had her skull fractured in that attack, among other injuries. Liz Sines, who is the Sines and Sines v. Kessler, which is the name of our lawsuit, was a UVA law student at the time. She was there both on Friday night during the Tiki Torch attack. Um, and she and some of our other plaintiffs have talked about how they thought they were literally going to die that night when they saw these Nazis surrounding them with lit torches. And then she was also there on Saturday um, and, and was injured in that violence. Reverend Seth Southwest Boy, who is another one of our plaintiffs, um, had organized an interfaith gathering um, to give the community a place to feel safe. And ironically, the gathering ultimately had to shelter in place because the Nazis planned the surprise Tiki Torch March on the University of Virginia, um, and they had to stay, uh, shelter in place because it was clearly unsafe for people to leave into that crowd of, of violent extremists. And so those are just some of our plaintiffs. And to me, what's extraordinary about them is that instead of taking the easy route, curling up in a ball, deciding that this horrible thing happened to them, um, and they didn't want to fight, anymore. They've decided to fight back. They've decided that it's too important not to hold those responsible accountable, not to use the laws that are meant to protect us to fight back. And to me, that's so extraordinary and so brave. And so we at IFA are just so grateful to get to support them in this case. And that bravery and that willingness to stand up against what's wrong and what needs challenging hasn't come without its risks, you and the organization you work for and these plaintiffs have found themselves obviously at risk here, putting themselves up against the white supremacist movement. What kind of threats have the plaintiffs, your legal team and, and yourself faced 
by taking this stance? Uh, the threats have been by far um, one of the biggest challenges in this case because, you know, what they're meant to do is try to prevent our plaintiffs, to prevent us, to prevent our legal team from taking action here. And, and we're not going to let them force us to back down, but these threats are very real and we have to take precautions accordingly. So, for example, our lead counsel is Roberta Kaplan, brilliant trial attorney um, who won the Windsor marriage equality case in 2013. She and Karen Dunn, our other lead counsel, another one of the top litiga litigators in the country, the two of them have faced extraordinary amounts of threats. Um, for example, Chris Cantwell, one of our defendants, known as the crying Nazi, um, actually currently in jail for other threats he made. Last summer threatened Robbie, talking about all the fun he was going to have with her when this was all over. And we filed that threat with the court and asked them to act. And with that filing, we also included an affidavit from the Anti-Defamation League, which has been supportive of the case, and researchers there who talk about what, while a threat of what these individual neo-Nazis might do on their own is certainly real, and we've seen firsthand their capacity for violence in Charlottesville and elsewhere, the bigger threat in some ways is them trying to inspire their followers to action, to do something to our legal team, our plaintiffs, to IFA, even if they themselves don't do it. And so, again, that speaks to the role of social media and the Internet here, in which a threat that might have just been a person-to-person -person threat 10, 15 years ago is now put out on platforms like Telegram and Gab and 4chan and 8chan and meant as a sort of rallying cry um, for these extremists. And so these threats are real. And to be completely frank, by far the biggest line item in Integrity First for America's budget is security. Um, we are funding this case, and that means ensuring that our legal team, our plaintiffs, our expert witnesses, and others at trial are wholly protected as we, um, as they take depositions, as they have hearings, and certainly as we have our multi-week trial in Charlottesville this fall. So every dollar that we raise at IFA directly supports those critical security and other case costs. Having to have such a large security budget must sometimes feel quite scary or intimidated by this situation. You know, you're up against individuals who clearly aren't afraid of violence. We saw that in the 2017 Charlottesville rally. Have these threats ever made you think, I need to back down a bit? Or do they just motivate you even more and say, I'm not going to be scared off or intimidated from fighting for what I know is right here. We don't love the threats. And while my mother doesn't love the fact that we get these threats, I think never once have any of us thought that we should back down here. The threats only underscore why this is so important, how emboldened these extremists feel, how violent they are at, this, at their core. This was never about Confederate monuments or the right to free speech or any of the other excuses they use. At the end of the day, this is about their commitment to bringing violence and harming people based on their religion, their race, or other traits and beliefs. And so the threats in many ways just affirm why we're doing this and underscore why this is so important to take on those who are the ringleaders of this movement, who orchestrated the violence in Charlottesville, and who obviously continue to spread violent hate to this day, to take them on and to bankrupt and dismantle them through the suit 
people who have ripple effects that go well beyond Charlottesville. And as sort of strange as it is, their threats against us only affirm that. One of the issues you're going to face when this goes to trial in October is a defense that's already been put out there, which is this claim that uh, the First Amendment protects some of the actions, the speech, the conversations that have been had on sites like Gab and Discord and 4chan. A defense lawyer who looked at the case said that, quote, the First Amendment is about protecting horrible opinions, not protecting reasonable ones trying to justify the words that were spoken by those individuals saying they didn't, some of them did commit crimes, but in some cases they didn't commit any crimes. They just said things that were deeply, deeply offensive. How do you plan on responding to those sort of claims? Obviously, I don't want to lay bare your entire prosecution strategy here, but how are you going to respond to that? You know, where... Do you see this line being drawn in the First Amendment between what they claim is free speech and what you would claim is incitement to commit violence? So the good news is, is that the judge in our case has already weighed in on this. Um, The judge has made clear that the First Amendment does not protect violence, period, end of story. And that is accurate. If these extremists had simply gone to Charlottesville, stood on the street with their signs, their swastikas, chanting their racist and anti-Semitic chants, um, carrying their weapons, um, and had done that and then left, they would have been well within their rights. But that's not what they did. For months in advance, they planned violence. They talked about every detail down to how to hit protesters with cars. And then they went to Charlottesville and they did it. And so much like if you and I were going to talk about robbing a bank and then we went and did it, that speech would not be protected. Neither is their speech in which they planned violence and then did it. This is a case about actions, not about words. The court agreed with that in its decision rejecting the defendant's motion to dismiss in July of 2018. It's on IFA's website and it's well worth a read whether you're a lawyer or not. Um, It's a very accessible decision. Um, And we think that this case is really important to make clear that if you are part of these violent conspiracies, if you are going to plan and execute violence, target people based on their race and their religion, um, their sexuality, you will face very real consequences, as you should. The First Amendment does not protect violence, and this case is very clear about that. And that's something that a lot of people will be relieved to hear in a court case, because as you have experienced and as the judge has had to weigh in on, that's something that people use to justify their actions in a lot of cases. And that reflects in itself one of the important fundamental elements of this case, because while it's initially about Charlottesville and the actions of the individuals at that rally, it's about, as you've talked about, this wider element. So with a successful case here, it will lay the groundwork for future court cases where people try to justify homophobic, racist, anti-Semitic violence under the First Amendment. We think that the legal precedent that this will set, setting this clear line in the sand that if you are part of these violent conspiracies, if you intend to harm people because of their color, the color of their skin or the religion they believe or their gender identity or their sexual orientation or any of these other statuses, um, you will face severe consequences. 
And so certainly there's a strong history of cases like this. Um, in you know the 80s and the 90s, there were a number of cases brought against KKK groups in which using statutes similar to ours, and in some cases ours, um, the KKK Act of 1871, um, these groups were taken on and bankrupted. Um, and there's the, the sort of the famous Michael Donald case in which the mother of the victim of this hate crime actually won the KKK's headquarters in Tuscaloosa as a result of this case. Um, and there's, I think, very strong precedent in which the KKK Act that we're using and similar statutes have been used to take on these hate groups and these hate leaders for the violence that they've planned and orchestrated. Um, and so we feel confident in that. And we also know that our case is groundbreaking in certain ways because we're looking at a new reality in which instead of planning these hate crimes, like I said earlier, in a clan den in the woods, they're doing it online. Um, and they're able to bring people together from around the country to descend on a city like Charlottesville and spread their violent hate. And so we also think that the impact of this case in setting that precedent, in impacting these groups and their ability to operate, and also sending a much larger public message about what's at stake here. Um, Robbie Kaplan, one of our lead counsels, likes to talk about how in every generation, there's a trial that truly captures the national attention and forces a public conversation on an issue that's desperately needed. Uh, we had the Prop 8 case in California, in which it really sort of forced marriage equality to the forefront of the public consciousness. There's been many other cases through history, as far back as the Scopes Monkey trial. Um, and this case, when we're putting the leaders of this violent movement on the stand, we're forcing them to testify to the violence and the and the hate that's at their core and that they planned and brought to Charlottesville um, and then holding them accountable for it and winning these large judgments, that will be a moment that can really raise the public consciousness on this crisis of violent extremism and make clear what's at stake here. We talked about the long lasting impact that the actions of white supremacists and neo-Nazis have had on the people of Charlottesville. And you sort of answered this question there with the aim of raising the public consciousness, having this incredibly important debate to, to move the country forward in a positive manner. But what do you hope from this will be the lasting, enduring, positive impact of the case that you've launched here? I think it's it's a few, a few things. One, at the end of the day, the most important thing is winning justice and accountability for our plaintiffs. Our plaintiffs in the community of Charlottesville lived through something that's horrific and unspeakable. Um, and certainly that was only the start of a much larger cycle of violence. But by winning accountability and justice for them, um, winning these large civil judgments on their behalf, that will be incredibly powerful. Two is by going after the infrastructure, the leaders and the groups that are at the center of this movement that are certainly responsible for Charlottesville, but that have ties and connections to so many of these other attacks and that so frequently use and abuse social media to spread their violent hate by taking them on, by bankrupting and dismantling them. This will have ripple effects that go well beyond the Charlottesville community and well beyond the Charlottesville attack. Um, sending a clear message and a clear deterrent that if you are part of these sorts of violent conspiracies, there are consequences. We've already seen some of that deterrent effect even before we go to trial. We 
we've already seen the financial and legal impact even before we go to trial. And when we have trial and win these large judgments, it, that impact will be um, exponentially larger. And then finally, the, the last point is, is what I mentioned earlier, which is that this trial really is an opportunity to lay bare the crisis of violent extremism in America. It's happening at a critical time in our national conversation this fall, where we hope people are paying attention to who we are as a country and the values we want to represent. Um, I suspect that it will get a fair amount of media attention when it happens, um, because it really is the only game in town when it comes to putting the leaders of this violent movement on the stand and holding them accountable in court. Um, and so by having that moment of public education, having this trial that is about the parties, but also much larger than the parties involved, um, that can really serve an important purpose in laying bare just how serious this crisis of violent extremism is. And so certainly there's so much more to say about this case. Um, but I will say that, you know, those three impacts are the ones that we are already seeing playing out as this case moves forward and that we certainly hope um, will uh, be realized at, at trial this fall. If people want to find out more about Integrity First for America, support your work, look more into the lawsuit that's going on, where can they go and do that? You can visit integrityfirstforamerica.org. Um, you can read the lawsuit, read all the other documents in the case, including the judge's important decision rejecting the motion to dismiss. You can support the case, which is so critical. First, sign up for our email list to get case updates, follow us on social media, and spread the word there. And more than anything, making a donation in support of the case is so critical right now. Every dollar we raise directly supports this litigation, the security costs, the evidence collection costs, these other costs um, related to making sure our legal team, our plaintiffs, our expert witnesses can go to trial this fall and be safe and successful when they do. So integrityfirstforamerica.org, please sign up, donate, do whatever you can to spread the word. Um, we are so grateful for it. Our plaintiffs are so grateful for it. Um, and we know that this case will have an impact that goes well beyond Charlottesville and has national implications that will serve all of us. Amy Spitalnik, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. That was the executive director of Integrity First for America, Amy Spitalnik. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Amy Spitalnik and the work of Integrity First for America on Twitter at Integrity for USA and www.integrityfirstforamerica.org. If you want to help ensure that we can keep giving a platform to progressive individuals and organisations and a voice to the voiceless, you can now support the Hard Report podcast by giving $5, $10 or $20 a month to the show at patreon.com forward slash the Hardy Report. Also, if you would like to recommend this podcast by submitting reviews online or by sharing it with friends and families, we'd really appreciate it. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.